Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Well, welcome back to our second week of our Lent journey with Jesus through the book of Matthew. In fact, you want to take your Bibles out. We're going to look at Matthew 3 and 4, page 784 in the Bibles in front of you. And remember, throughout this journey, throughout these weeks leading up and through Easter, we're looking around and we're paying attention to the locations that Matthew points out because place matters. Place matters. We learned that last week looking at Jesus' birth story in Matthew 1 and 2. It mattered on this map up here. It mattered that Jesus was born down here in Bethlehem of Judah. That wasn't just a random place that God chose because it was a nice little quaint, cute town for his son to be born. There was purpose. There was meaning behind that place. And it mattered that Jesus didn't grow up in Bethlehem, but that Jesus grew up way up here in Nazareth of Galilee, in a little tiny town far away from anything that mattered. That location is going to shape all of Jesus' life and all of Jesus' ministry. He will always be a country commoner and an outsider to the established elite of Jerusalem and Judah. We learned last week, we're going to learn all through this journey, that when we understand place better, we understand Jesus better. So if you were here last week, we left Jesus hidden away, way up here in Nazareth, in Galilee, in the middle of nowhere. Right? Matthew fast forwards us now about 30 years. That, that blank space in your Bibles between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, there's 30 years tucked into that silent blank space. And Jesus is now a young man. And he's going to hike out of those distant hills of Galilee. And he's going to start his public ministry. He's ready now. Just like it's like a modern-day political candidate, right, who stands behind the podium and with cameras flashing and, and the news cameras rolling, turns the microphone on and boldly declares her candidacy for president. Well, it's time for Jesus now to declare his public ministry and to get started. So the question we need to ask is where? Where does he do that? Because remember, place matters. Logically, it would make perfect sense that Jesus would go to Jerusalem, right? To the temple, that he would stand on the temple steps there in the glorious state of Jerusalem and declare himself, arrived, I'm here, the Messiah, the rabbi, the teacher you've all been waiting for. That would be the place, right? That's where spiritual conversations happen. That's where rabbis gather to teach. That's the heart and soul of the spiritual truth in Israel. But if you were here last week, you shouldn't be surprised to hear that Jesus doesn't go there. Because remember from his birth story, we learned he's not a Jerusalem kind of king. He isn't a political or a religious insider in the systems and structures of that culture. He's going to lead through humility from outside of the established structures of power and authority. So in verse 13 of chapter 3, we walk out of the backwoods hills of Galilee with Jesus. And listen to where he goes. Verse 13, chapter 3. 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now pause there for a moment with me. As anyone would assume, Jesus begins his missionary, his mission ministry, down in the south, southern region of Judah. But surprisingly, he doesn't head to the city of Jerusalem. He doesn't go to the temple. Instead, he heads, he heads down over here to the Jordan River, just east of Jerusalem, where John the Baptist happens to be baptizing. Right? He heads, he heads to the desert of Judah. And those of you who are here for eye study last Sunday... Hopefully you'll recognize these pictures when they come up on the screen. This is where Jesus went. This is the desert of Judah. There's 20 miles between Jerusalem and the Jordan River, and the 20 miles look like this. This is not pretty territory. This is harsh, cruel desert land. And so the people, when it says the people from Jerusalem went to hear John the Baptist at the Jordan River, they were walking 20 miles through this. And this is where Jesus goes to begin his ministry. He heads through this down to the Jordan, to the water, to the river, to this little oasis in the middle of this dry and desert land. And this baptism moment, in this baptism moment in the Jordan River, it's a signal of a new and exciting moment in movement. Jesus here, he's in the neighborhood of Jerusalem now. And with this water of baptism, God publicly declares his approval on Jesus' ministry. He even goes so far as, as to send the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove and then to speak his own voice for everyone to hear, to say, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. In other words, here we go. This is my work. This is my boy. Let's get this ministry started. And with that kind of endorsement, right, with, with that kind of momentum behind him, it would make perfect sense that Jesus' next step now should be Jerusalem. The next location we should go to with Jesus should be the temple in the heart of Jerusalem where with God's approval, where with God's power, with God's endorsement, Jesus now can bring truth to all those who are deceived. So let's keep reading. Let's find out what the next place is that Jesus shows up at. Start up chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit, not to Jerusalem. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city. 
and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came to attend to him. So Jesus makes a surprising shift in location. He doesn't go far, but he might as well have moved to a whole different planet. Right? Instead of going to Jerusalem, he moves from the refreshing, life-giving waters of the Jordan River to the devastating, life-stealing heat of the desert and the wilderness. He wanders all alone out into that land, into that place, 40 days and 40 nights in that unforgiving territory. I don't think I'd last one night. 40 days and 40 nights. And Jesus' detour into this desert is no, is no accident. Jesus did not inadvertently wander off the path and get lost in the desert. He didn't take a right when he should have taken a left. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. He had just been baptized. God, God had just spoken his blessing over him. He was ready to begin this redemption plan of salvation that he had come to accomplish. And the Holy Spirit begins by leading him out there. Begins by leading him into the desert places. And here in the desert, he now goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan himself. And some of you here, I know, are very, very familiar with places like this. You're very familiar with the wilderness places in life. And you've been acquainted with the temptations that come when you're in the wilderness. Many of you here have let me walk with you through those dry and desert times in your lives. We certainly like to assume that if we commit ourselves to God, if we're faithful followers of Jesus Christ, then there should not be any desert times in our lives. Then we should be free from the wilderness. We should be free from hardships. We should be free from temptations. But unfortunately, that just is not true. That's not the way it works. That's not what God promises us. And there are times when God's Spirit will lead us as he led Jesus into dry places that will stretch our faith. You and I can expect to be exposed to wilderness places where Satan will do his worst and where God has the opportunity to do some of his most powerful life-shaping work in us. So this morning... We're preparing ourselves for this place. The desert is not, is not a friendly place. It's a dangerous place. And Jesus 
shows us how to be ready for the desert, how to be ready for these wilderness times, how to be ready for the temptations that Satan brings in those places in life. A couple things that you need to know from this story. First of all, first of all, we need to be ready for Satan's attacks in the wilderness places, and we must know how Satan works if we're going to be ready, right? Secrecy and surprise are invaluable weapons when you're taking on an enemy. And if Satan can catch us by surprise, if Satan can, can sneak up on us, then he has the advantage. But thankfully, through this story, we know, we know Satan's favorite strategies that he's going to use against us. We can see them right here in this story. And if we know them, we can prepare for them. So we're going to learn some of his strategies. Secondly, we must also know Scripture. Because Scripture is what will be our best defense, Jesus teaches us. Jesus defends each of his temptations with words from this book. With God's words. And yet Jesus knew not only the words of this book, but he also knew the stories of God's people told in this book. He learned from those stories. He learned not to make the same mistakes that they made. And so it, knowing there's wilderness places in our lives that either we already have experienced or we're going to experience, it's foolish for us not to know this book, not to know its words, not to know its stories. It's foolish for us to be unprepared to defend ourselves from Satan's attacks. So this morning we're looking at Jesus' desert experience to learn for our own. Right? And the first temptation, Jesus' first encounter with Satan. Remember, we're going to look at place for each of these two. The place for this first temptation is the desert. It's, it's the place where Satan takes, takes his shot at Jesus' place of greatest need there in the desert. Remember, Jesus is hungry. 40 days and 40 nights. There is no food anywhere to be seen. He's been fasting for that long, and after that long, anything looks good. I don't care what you don't like to eat. You'll eat it after 40 days and 40 nights. And here comes Satan. Knowing Jesus' miraculous power, he knows who Jesus is. And knowing Jesus' desperate hunger, He's human, just like you and me. He invites him to satisfy that hunger with his own strength, right? If you are the Son of God, tell this stone here to become bread. Satan centers this first temptation on that immediate pressing need that Jesus feels deep within himself. And as tempting as that must have been, because it would have been simple for Jesus to do, and my guess is just hearing the word bread, he could already smell it in his nose, and it smelled so good. As tempting as it was, Jesus knew that his greatest need was to be faithful to God, not to satisfy his hunger. He knew that his greatest satisfaction would come not from bread, but from obedience. But you and I can learn that Satan is going to attack us. He's going to attack you. He's going to attack me. Directly in the place of our greatest hunger, our greatest need, our greatest want, our greatest desire. 
He is going to offer you and he's going to offer me the promise of satisfying your want, of satisfying your need, of satisfying your desire. And we all have those wants and needs and desires. We have those hungers in our lives that we desperately want satisfied. You have them. I have them. And we believe that when that hunger and that need is satisfied, then we will find fulfillment. Then we will find satisfaction in life. For Jesus, at that moment of his temptation, it was a physical hunger. And some of us share that same temptation. It's our physical appetite for food or alcohol that drives us to drink but leaves us unsatisfied gluttons. For others of us, it's an appetite for sex that brings momentary pleasure but leaves us relationally empty. Some of us have a hunger and an appetite for money that leaves us rich with big bank accounts but leaves us feeling ragged in life. For some of us, it's an appetite. It's a hunger. It's a desire for pleasure that that leaves us striving for the better job and the bigger vacation and the greater thrill and the higher high. For some of us, it's an appetite for possessions that maybe leaves us with a bigger house and a newer car and a nicer wardrobe, but also leaves us with an empty and hollow soul. What we should expect Satan to be aiming to exploit your greatest hunger your greatest desire. When Jesus recognized Satan aiming for his greatest hunger, he remembered the people of Israel when they were hungry. You and I don't, we don't know truly what it means to be starving, what it means to be hungry. Most of us don't at least. The people of Israel did when they were wandering in the desert. There was no food. There was no water. And Jesus remembers that story and remembers how the people of Israel in their hunger turned their back on God, turned their back on his purpose and his plan, forgot to trust him. They forgot that true life is sustained not by meeting the needs of this world, but by trusting God. They forgot that true satisfaction comes from finding yourself in the middle of God's plan and his purposes. And true satisfaction comes not from from the things that this world provides, but from being at the center of God's design. And they fail the test. They grumble, they complain. They want God to fill their stomachs more than they want him to fill their hearts. Right? It's the same story, right? Their greatest hunger is their greatest weakness, and Satan uses it to pull them astray. Jesus remembers that story, and he says to Satan, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So if you and I are going to be prepared, then we need to ask ourselves what we want more. Do we want God to fill our stomachs? Or to fill our hearts? Do we want him to satisfy our greatest want? Know your greatest hunger. Know your point of greatest weakness. And expect Satan to tempt you there. Expect Satan to target that place for his purposes. It's what he does in the desert. 
from that desert place, Satan takes Jesus to a new place. So that he takes him to Jerusalem, up to the highest peak of the temple, right? The, the, the tallest building in the city. This is the place that symbolizes all strength. It symbolizes all power. It symbolizes national and spiritual pride. And standing there on the, on the tall corner of the temple wall, Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, I dare you. Throw yourself down and let God catch you. Isn't that what God your father promised you? He promised he would do that. He promised that he would send angels to catch you and lower you gently down into the courtyard of the temple. And there, if you do this, Jesus, everyone will see. And everyone will know that you are the Messiah, the son of God. Come on, make it public. Let God show himself. Make God show himself. And there's the temptation. It's a temptation that pokes at Jesus' pride. He has the opportunity here to control God. Right? To make God do things his way. Remember all, all, all these powerful religious leaders are gathered here in the temple. And they're the ones who control the halls of the temple. And they would certainly be looking down in contempt on this backwoods preacher from the hick town of Nazareth in Galilee who talked funny. Jesus knows that he's going to face an uphill climb when it comes to winning them over to his side. But if he jumped right here at the beginning, if he jumped knowing that God, his father, would be true to his word, would miraculously help him and rescue him right there in public, right there in the temple courtyard, then everyone would believe. Everyone would see and know. If he puts God to the test here, he can change the plan. He can control God. And if Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, then he wasn't immune to pride. And jumping would make him look really, really good. Make God prove himself right here, right now. Right here, center stage. And everyone will see him for who he truly is, the Messiah. And Satan tempts us today, just like he tempts Jesus. He tempts us to show our spiritual arrogance. It's a subtle but deadly shifting of roles. Our spiritual arrogance tempts us to use God for our purposes and our plans instead of trusting God and following his purposes and his plans. We do it all the time. We use God for our purposes. We place ourselves one rank above God so that we can use him to get what we want, to bless our plans and our designs, to prove our importance and our value. You and I so often manipulate God to make us rich, to make us successful, to make us popular, to try and make us winners. In our spiritual arrogance, we make God one more tool in our life toolbox that we can use to make our plans become realities and to make our dreams come true. Jesus doesn't fall. He doesn't jump. He sets his pride aside with another quote from Deuteronomy. It says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
in your spiritual arrogance. Do not try to control God for your purposes. Don't shift those roles like we do. We try, and con- we try and control God for our purposes rather than being willing to be controlled for his. We tell God our plans instead of listening for his. We ask God to bless what we're doing instead of doing what he has said he will bless. Jesus doesn't fall to this temptation. He continues to humble himself to God's purposes and plans. And no amount of poking at his pride is going to make him use God instead of trust God. Finally, Satan brings Jesus to one more place. He brings him from the top of the temple peak to the top of a mountain peak. And from this mountain peak... Somehow he can see all the kingdoms of the world. He can see this whole world that he has come to save. I like to think he can see through time as well. I like to think that he can see our kingdom. He can see you and me sitting here right now in our lives. And he sees all of us who are under Satan's dominion, all of us who are suffering in the brokenness of sin, And Satan offers to give all of this to Jesus in return for just one bowed knee. One moment of worship. I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. He targets the temptation of easy power. You see, when Satan makes this offer, when Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world in return for just a moment of submission to him, he's inviting Jesus to take a shortcut, a shortcut that will short-circuit God's plan. You see, Jesus knew, Jesus knew God's salvation plan that he was working out, right? He knew that what he faced was, was a long three years It was a difficult and painful plan. And he knew that at the end, it would include rejection. It would include a beating. It would include a cross. He knew it would be horrible. He knew this is how God's great salvation power would be released into the world. He knew that this is how he would be able to redeem all these kingdoms of the world. But in this moment, Satan offers him an easier way. There can be another way, he said. You can have this all the easy way right now if you just follow my plan instead of God's plan. This short-circuiting of God's plan should sound awfully familiar to us. We fall for these short-circuit temptations from Satan all the time in life. Instead of studying hard for that test, just look at your neighbor's test. Good results without all the hard work, right? Instead of doing the difficult work of making a broken relationship better, just leave and find someone else. Good results without all the hard work. Instead of working hard on the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines of prayer and reading God's word and and serving and giving, just show up on Sundays and look good here at church. Everybody will assume the best of you. Good results without all the hard work. Instead of putting in the time to earn a living, buy a lottery ticket. 
great results without all the hard work. The problem is these aren't good results. We don't gain the knowledge and the wisdom. And, and the broken relationship still does its damage. And our relationship with God becomes empty ritual. And, and we end up irresponsible and poor in the end. And all these shortcuts that we take in life leave us short of what God truly desires for us. Of the wholeness and shalom and fullness that he's designed for us. When we choose the shortcuts over God's plan, we're bowing our knee to Satan. We're worshiping him. We're saying, I'll follow your plan. I'll trust you instead of what God has designed for me. Jesus refuses to choose the shortcut. He again quotes Deuteronomy 6, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In other words, I'm only going to follow God my Father's plan. I'm boldly going to live out God's desires through His strength, knowing it's not going to be easy, knowing that it involves a cross, but I'm going to choose no shortcut. In fact, that kind of daily obedience is what it really means to worship God and serve Him only, as Jesus quotes. We, we, we wrap worship God so much into what happens for an hour on Sunday mornings. It's so much more than that. Worshiping the Lord your God and serving Him only isn't about just showing up on Sunday. It's about choosing to give your whole life over to the plan of God, no shortcuts. It's about trusting in God's plan instead of our own plans. That's why Paul challenges us in Romans 12 to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. He says that's your spiritual act of worship. He doesn't say going to church on Sunday is your spiritual act of worship. He says offering yourselves daily as a living sacrifice, living out God's plan, walking away from Satan's shortcuts, that's worship. So Jesus here, he starts his three-year ministry, this three-year-long journey to the cross. He starts it somewhere that, I don't know about you, but I never would have guessed or expected. He starts it in the wilderness. He willingly walks into the desert to prepare himself for what's to come. And amazingly, it's in the wilderness and it's in the desert that he finds the strength to resist temptation. It's in the desert that he finds the strength to trust God. It's in the desert that he sets out on the plan that God had for him. You and I need to pay attention to this place, to, to this wilderness and desert place in the story. Because every single one of us either already has or will have our own wilderness story. You will have a desert time. And in these desert times, when life truly is hard, when it's discouraging, when it is downright heartbreaking, and you're weary and you are worn out, you know who's going to show up? Satan's going to show up right there in the wilderness. 
right there in the desert. And when you're at your weakest, he's going to offer to satisfy your greatest want, since God seems to be failing. And he's going to offer, offer that you can take control instead of God, since he doesn't seem to be doing a very good job anyways. And he's going to offer you an easy shortcut when God's plan seems too difficult, too unreasonable. It's in the wilderness that you and I need to be ready. Because if we are, if we are, God will work there. And the wilderness can become a pathway to power instead of destruction. It can. Look at what it does for Jesus. He walks into the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit, right? He had just been baptized. The Spirit came, walked into the wilderness full of the Spirit. Now he's been fasting in this wilderness for 40 days. He's weak. He's tired. He's gone head to head against the devil himself. You would think that this wilderness experience now would leave him spiritually weak, worn out, ragged, vulnerable. By the end of our passage, it tells us that God sends his angels to care for Jesus, his son. God is present there in the wilderness to strengthen his people, to restore his faithful children. And you're going to read, if you read through Matthew this week, you're going to read the next section tells us that Jesus walked out of that desert, and he walks right back up to Galilee, and he starts preaching. For Jesus, this wilderness, even though, even though he never pretends here that it's enjoyable, that it's fun, that it's not a problem, this wilderness, though, becomes a place where his faith is strengthened, where his commitment to God finds its resolve. For Jesus, the wilderness becomes a pathway to the power of God. Place matters. This wilderness story, this desert story, it matters. It matters to Jesus because the desert is where Jesus is tested. It's where he is strengthened. And it matters to us because the wilderness and the desert can do the same thing for us if we're preparing. If you aren't in the wilderness now, it's only a matter of time until the brokenness of this world breaks through into your life as well. It's only a matter of time until Satan will meet you in the desert and he will try to crumble your faith and to break your trust in God. And the temptation will be real. Be ready. Get ready today for the wilderness that might come tomorrow. And when we're ready, you might just find God. God ready to strengthen you. God ready to empower you. God ready to hold you in his embrace. Especially in the middle of the wilderness. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your story. For the life that you lived that is so much like ours. That you, Jesus, would experience those desert disappointments. That you go into the wilderness, lonely, alone, hungry, 
weak and that you'd face that temptation just like we do. Father, I'm sure that many of us here in this room have already thought about our wilderness location. Maybe it's a journey we've taken in the past and we've never really processed it. We've come out of it bitter and angry, confused. Maybe it's a journey that we're in the middle of right now. And we know, we know the dryness, the spiritual dryness of the wilderness. And we're, we're being tempted right now to walk away from you, to shortcut your plan. And maybe some of us are looking forward, we're anticipating a wilderness that we are pretty certain will come. Father, as we look and experience those challenging times of life, those dry times in life, open up our eyes to see your presence in the wilderness with us. To know that your love never walks away from us. Your presence never disappears. Your strength is there to carry us through. Open up our eyes to see you every moment of every day. To cling to you. And to trust you deeply. Even when trust doesn't seem to make sense to us. And Father, I do pray that as you did for your own son, that you would send your angels to care for those of us in the wilderness. Maybe you'll do that supernaturally. But sometimes your angel will come in the, in the form of a friend, a fellow church member. Sometimes that angel will come in the form of a card in the mail, a gift card given, a freezer meal made, a coffee time where honest words can be spoken and tears can be shared. Sometimes that angel can come from a friend who prays for us when we simply don't have it in us to pray. Father, I believe that there's, there's maybe some of that angel purpose right here in this room. Make us the kind of community that you can use to carry people through those wilderness times and that all of us might be strengthened to gather through you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand with me? Worship team, would you come forward? We're going to respond in a song that asks us to be honest. Right? We go through life often believing that we don't really need God. Yeah, maybe for a little bit here or there, but mostly we can handle life on our own. We're going to end this morning by